Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hi everyone. On this episode of Venture Stories, Eric is joined by Laura Wu, co-founder and CEO of Shippo, and Talia Goldberg, venture investor at Bessemer. The episode starts with Laura explaining how they came up with the idea for Shippo. For business at the very beginning, it looked somewhat different from what we had right now. Um, our first thought was something along the lines of Expedia for shipping, so more of an online tool comparison, a calculator. And then from that, we realized actually when you ship lots of packages, then you don't want just an online tool where you have to type in every like package dimension to and from address one by one. You want it to be imported automatically. So that's um, when we went back to the drawing board and decided to model it more after Stripe and have a more API-centric approach. And then after that, we then again built a, built a dashboard on top of the API for our customers to be able to see what's going on and to do one-off shipments through the dashboard as well. Um, and when did we know it was a good business? I mean, I think one of the interesting or funny things to look back on was when we went through 500 startups, I didn't really know how to fundraise and we did like a lot of <laughs> unsuccessful pitches. So in total, I pitched 125 investors before raising our seed round. I think that was from maybe 10 or 11 investors. So there was a lot of no's that we heard along the way and shipping just like, I think, VCs weren't super excited about shipping because it's not a product that VCs need to use day to day. So it's just something a little hard to relate to. Um, we were always lucky that we could refer to Twilio and Stripe as like two points of comparisons of like API centric companies that have done very well. But it, it took us a while to get there. When we found the right investor, like Jeff Clavia, he got it almost immediately. And then from there, things started happening fast. And what did Jeff see that other, that his peers didn't? Hmm, good question. Um, so I think for Jeff, it was mostly really, it was a comparison between, between like the comparison to Twilio, the comparison to Stripe. He saw something very similar in what we were building and also what we were pitching back then was, um, on the one hand, this is a very big market and e-commerce is just getting started. So the market size is huge. And then on the other hand, like we already have customers. So we're able to show that we had early traction and customers were happy about us and we had that early growth. And I think pitching like seed investors back then, the advice that I got, I think from the CEO that I used to work for was that seed investors, they actually don't really care about how you're solving the problem as long as you can convince them that the market is big and there is a problem. Like it doesn't really matter how. So that's, that's what we did. Like big market, the problem, our customers were happy with us. We had a growing customer base and then um, we we're still experimenting with like how exactly to like whether it's an API centric or a dashboard first approach. Yeah. I just found my email where I, I, I was a scout for, for Nas's fund Queensbridge back in the day. And I remember yeah. with him and I guess he didn't get it or move fast enough in time. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm not going to rub it in. So, <laughs> Talia, you, you and Bessemer invested in, in Shippo. And I remember, you know, Bessemer has been uh, involved in e-commerce for, for a very long time. I remember looking at Sarah Tavel's like e-commerce series of blog posts in like 2010 or something. Why don't you talk a little bit about how Bessemer has viewed the category 
historically and uh, how that has evolved over time to where we are now. Yeah, no, for sure. So yeah, Bessemer's been investing in e-commerce and e-commerce related businesses for quite some time. I think Bessemer was actually in the 70s or 80s an investor in Staples and um, Dick's Sporting Goods. So even going back to like what at the time was really innovative retail businesses. And then as the internet kind of emerged, or not the, as the internet and e-commerce kind of came into the golden age and during the dot-com era, backed a number of other companies, some which were successful, some which, some which weren't, um, but companies like Blue Nile and, and, and the like and others. And I think uh, Bessemer invested in, in Quidzy and in diapers.com. Um, which was Mark Lore who's now running e-commerce at Walmart, the first business. And it was kind of selling, selling diapers online to moms. It was a great business and it was really successful. But towards the end of its, of its life as a, as a private company, shortly before it was acquired, you started to see the power of Amazon. And the team at diapers was constantly looking and saying, Oh my gosh, well, like, look at what these people over at Amazon are doing. And we sort of got an inside view as to what a beast Amazon was going to become. And then that came true and Amazon and, and diapers in this sort of notorious and well-documented on the internet kind of war kind of had a battle where diaper prices were slashed and ultimately diapers did sell, sell to Amazon and it was a successful outcome, but it was one that really demonstrated that competing in kind of third-party e-commerce and trying to compete just generally with Amazon was, was very, very scary and something that, you know, we felt like um, was not for the faint of heart and was an area that we actually would consider a, a little bit of an anti-roadmap, meaning something that we wanted to stay far away from despite the success there. And that kind of led to thinking about, well, where are the really interesting areas and opportunities in commerce? And and that's about the time when I joined the firm. And the areas that we've ended up spending significant amount of time on and continue to spend time in are, are sort of twofold. One in um, tools and software and products and platforms, much like Shippo, that can empower businesses to exist, compete, and thrive in e-commerce, be it by launching storefronts, having websites like Shopify and Wix, accepting payments like Stripe, helping with fulfillment like Shippo, and helping to empower entrepreneurs to actually run successful e-commerce businesses themselves. And then the second area, which was around marketplaces, where we saw the, the evolution of marketplaces from what used to be kind of listing marketplaces like Craigslist and OLX into transactional marketplaces and then over time even managed marketplaces that were able to really aggregate kind of fragmented supply sides and demand sides and create really great businesses with strong network effects that had powerful flywheels where it was just nearly impossible for anyone else to compete once those flywheels really start spinning. And so we decided to just really double down and focus on marketplaces and and on software and, and and products to empower to empower businesses both enterprises and small businesses to compete in e-commerce and can you unpack more about what you see in terms of the future of marketplaces some people are critique managed marketplaces and say that sort of the margins will never be that great or, or it's difficult to imagine sort of venture outcomes how do you sort of push back push back on that yeah so i mean i do think it's been sort of a natural evolution like you had listing marketplaces where there was just still a lack of trust and a lot of onus on buyers and suppliers to actually figure out like, okay, well, is this person legitimate? You had to kind of pay even often just to list um, a service or a product on, on the, on the sites, much like Craigslist still operates today, but there was incredible liquidity. And I think transactional marketplaces kind of came in and, and solved a real pain point, which was, Hey, like we can become this trusted intermediate intermediary where we can actually facilitate the transaction 
who can trust us as a trusted intermediary. And we can also help vet and qualify both the supply and the demand side, creating like a much better experience. And in some cases, even a, a very e-commerce like experience where you don't even have to think about ratings or reviews. Like you, you know, you say much like when you're looking and waiting for an Uber, you say, Hey, I just want a car that can come quickly to my location and bring me from point A to B. You're not looking and saying, Hey, does driver A, B or C have the best reviews? Let me decide. Let me send him a message and then see who can come. It's, it's, it's very seamless and it's just a one click transaction. And so there's been a little bit of a, of a transition towards that where I think and the managed marketplaces are, I think, another extension of that where they're just helping to facilitate the transaction in a really seamless way. And I think for some marketplaces or for some models, it might be right that the businesses are never going to have the gross margin profile of a business like eBay or or Uber or Airbnb today, but they still might be really great businesses where the alternatives and the incumbents might be operating kind of very manual services businesses that have something like 20% gross margin. And if you can come in and use software and marketplace business model to improve that entire transaction and the workflow, it's possible that you're a 50, 60% gross margin business competing against incumbents that are just have a totally different way of operating in the world. And so even something like a stitch fix on the one hand where they have um, empowered their stylists and, and designers with a bunch of different software and decisioning tools to make them just so much better and more efficient at their jobs as some form of a managed marketplace. And we have a, a portfolio company called ACB Auctions, which is in the B2B car dealership marketplace, where in the offline world or in the kind of pre-ACB world, most car auctions were happened literally in physical auction sites where you would have cars and most dealers would be bidding kind of real-time on cars as they go in through the physical auction. And they kind of came in and said, like, this is sort of crazy. This should happen on a mobile device um, or wherever the dealers are. Um, you can have much more dynamic bidding. And we can then vet the cars and help manage the transportation from kind of dealer A to dealer B. And they've done that. And do they have the 80% gross margin profile of a software business or an internet social network? No. But relative to what they're competing with and and the service and, and the, the value proposition that they provide is dramatically better, faster, and cheaper than the alternative. So I think it I think it can work. And I think what we're excited about thinking through next is like where is there the potential to actually leverage software, AI, different technology to actually make some of the output or the work, the the supply side better um, than they would be without the marketplace. So not even just kind of connecting, but actually helping to improve the way that they work. So yeah, if you, there's a business that uh, I thought was pretty interesting in, in China that I recently learned about called Pingon Good Doctor, which is now a public company, I believe. But they basically kind of go through and go through a AI workflow where you're messaging a doctor, talking about your symptoms and kind of going back and forth. And, and that'll all be done via AI. But then if you need to see an actual doctor and it's the AI says, hey, like we need to triage this. This person needs to come in. We're going to connect them to a doctor in our network. That doctor is sitting there and is empowered with a bunch of different data and decisioning tools that help them say, hey, in 99.9% of the cases, this is what you know we would recommend. And they're better at doing their job. They can avoid some of the biases and they can work faster and see more patients. So I think over time, we might see different marketplaces where software is actually an enabler and changing the whole nature of the way that, that you work and interact with folks. I want us to pretend that we're starting a fund that's solely a venture fund that's solely focused on e-commerce. And the next set of questions will be with that sort of 
frame, you know, hypothetical in mind. And yeah. what, the first question there is how would we, and you know, Laura, you are doing some, some angel investing now. How, mm-hmm. how would we think about Amazon in terms of what opportunities exist because Amazon exists or perhaps more importantly, what, what opportunities would we stay away from? Because yeah. I love that. Uh, one last thought on the on the marketplace question that you had. So, like for marketplaces, what I also find quite fascinating is that like a lot of these marketplaces are able to make buyers just more comfortable with buying from strangers. Like the marketplace is able to enforce a certain standard. You know, if you buy on on Etsy or if a transaction is powered uh, by PayPal, that if something goes wrong, you you'll be able to trust PayPal's Etsy's customer support. You know what kinds of return standards they have um, with shipping. Sometimes it's the same thing where you know like the what the shipping expectations is. So I think marketplaces have the other benefit in addition to connecting people to have like some sort of stamp of approval. Um, you know that the the sellers on that marketplace, if they're not being rated properly or or if they're going to be kicked off the platform. Yeah, by the way, I, I love that idea. Like, I think one of the biggest things that gets me excited about Shippo is that like, for so long, shipping is, um, and fulfillment, I think a lot of businesses perceive it as a cost center, like a, you know, it's like this cogs on your, on your P&L and it's something that it's just a cost and you have to do it. And maybe it's getting more expensive because in the age of Amazon, you have to, you know, pay more to have fast shipping. But in reality, I think it's really the opposite and something that, you know, like Shippo and, and kind of the, as you think about the future of commerce and fulfillment is really changing because fulfillment and shipping is actually a revenue driver. Like one of the biggest reasons that people abandon their shopping carts is because of the shipping times and selections. And if you think about what Amazon did do, they basically um, made shipping such a competitive advantage and a revenue driver where you were saying, hey, because this is prime eligible and we have guaranteed two day shipping, this leads to a significant uplift in sales. And the same thing for these small businesses, like, hey, you know, using Shippo, you know, shipping is no longer something that one is really painful and you have to go around integrating with a hundred different kind of carriers and reading through those API docs, figuring out rates and optimizing all of it. But you can actually make a much better experience and drive an uplift in sales as well. And so I think, you know, some of it is, is cost savings, but some of it is, um, is is actually just genuinely making a much better experience and and, and improving the businesses. But anyway, so back to the your set your other point on if we were starting a, a business or a, a fund today to invest in commerce. A great question. One of the things that I'm curious if you, Laura, actually have any any thoughts on either, but that I've been thinking about a lot is that today, or actually if you fast forward or rewind ten years ago, a lot of the rhetoric around what was happening in China was that they were imitating a lot of the successful businesses in the U.S. and sort of adapting them to the Chinese market and ecosystem. And those became some really big businesses. And I look today and I kind of fast forward today. And I think it's a little bit the opposite. And that, in fact, a lot of innovation, particularly in e-commerce, is is coming from China and that we've moved from this world where they were imitators to one where they're really innovators. And that if you look at kind of discovery based and social commerce and live stream commerce and the like, they're actually kind of leapfrogged the U.S. significantly. And while I don't think kind of what works in China will necessarily work in the U.S., I think there's a lot that you can learn and kind of adapt to this market that is pretty innovative here today. Yeah, agreed. I think the other aspect is that the Chinese market increasingly has an appetite for uh, Western products and is wanting to get these Western products through their own technologies, through their own uh, social networks, to their doorstep as fast as possible. 
Yeah. A lot of the world of e-commerce today, I think that has been really successful for the most part has primarily been pretty search based, meaning like I want to search for something. I know what I need and I, it's going to be come and get delivered. And that's yeah. kind of Amazon is like that. A lot of Shopify is like that. But people are looking for something. And if you look at the offline world, retail is actually like there's a lot of impulse purchase behavior. People mm. who used to go to shopping malls and would like hang out with their friends. <laughs> and that was a social place. And it would lead to then commerce and checking out. And that behavior, for the most part, is still an offline behavior. And I think, you know, companies like Poshmark, perhaps an, a, a fashion marketplace, is a little bit more social inherently in how if you go on and interact, like it's really lively. It's very much a community. It's a social experience. Maybe Wish is a little bit of a discovery like shopping experience. But outside of a few examples, I think a lot of commerce today is very much um, search based. And I think there's still really big opportunities to take what's like a natural social human behavior that does still exist offline and like these impulse purchases, these social purchases and, and translate some of that online. Yeah, I love that point. So people always ask, like, why are there separate brands that are not being sold on Amazon? Like, why don't people just put everything on Amazon? And I think what we see there is that people go on Amazon exactly for what, what Talia said, for uh, typing in generic word searches. People are not looking for specific brands on Amazon. They're open to any sort of recommendations. They type in the, the broad product category that they're looking for, like black pen instead of the specific brand of pen that they're looking for. And then they go with whatever is recommended by Amazon, whatever has the highest reviews. So what um, we see, like the kinds of customers that ship with us um, and don't sell on Amazon, these are brands that are building like first of all, a brand awareness that want to own their own customer experience. Um, people who are selling more of a lifestyle, not even a product, but a, a more premium product with a lifestyle attached to it. And a lot of them also sell on like a multitude of different channels. They might have their own websites. They also sell through social. So Instagram are big channels for our customers. Um, on Instagram, I think it's fascinating how people just follow all of these like smaller brands. You wouldn't as a consumer follow, I don't know, Walmart or Amazon's Instagram account, but like all of these smaller brands that sell shoes or, or clothing directly to the end customer mattresses, even um, you would follow their Instagrams. And it's almost like following a friend. They're not like aggressively trying to sell you an item in every single post, but they're trying to like show their items in, in like, cool surroundings, like attached to a lifestyle that you subscribe to, maybe with an influencer. And um, then like, it's it's more of a emotional awareness that you have to that sort of positioning. Totally. I think I'm sure Instagram and Facebook are working on it, but it feels like it's you know, been one of the biggest missed opportunities of making some of that behavior just transactional <laughs> as well. I'm curious on, on your side, if you think, and I've read different thoughts on this, from, you know, at Walmart where they see, I think, retail and kind of physical retail stores as a very big part of the future of e-commerce where people will, you know, buy things online and pick up in store and, you know, grocery being a key area of that. And I've seen a bunch of different kind of other takes and thoughts on how the physical retail world and the online commerce world will kind of increasingly be linked and tied and really important. I'm curious if you, what you think about that and if your customers see physical retail as a key part of actually fulfillment and where they pick up products and, and how they shop? Yeah, that's a fun question. I think 
first of all, even Amazon has started building physical stores. So I, I don't think physical retail will be going away anytime soon. It's more about like, what does physical retail look like in the future? And a lot of our customers and a lot of the like more modern direct to consumer brands have turned their physical storefronts into more of an experience based outline and i think for example here in in hayes valley there's that outdoor voices store where there's a like a little indoor waterfall and people go in there to drink tea and then maybe buy something or the reformation store in the mission or a showroom and an experience less of a traditional shopping experience so our customers a lot of them when they start out as direct-to-consumer companies uh, when they do become more successful they start opening up pop-up stores. They start having their own like locations. And the one of the upsides of having a physical storefront is also being able to ship from a location that's closer to the demand. So I think one of the big advantages that Amazon has is that they never put their inventory further than 70 miles away from the actual consumer. So if you have a physical location in a densely populated area, you're able to just like fulfill your orders out of those locations and ship uh, from there directly to the end customer, cutting down dramatically on shipping costs. What you can also do is you can accept returns in that physical storefront. So customers don't have to print out shipping labels or they don't have to go to the carrier store. They can just walk into your physical location and hand the item back. So that's the two upsides that we see for shipping, for fulfillment of having a, a physical location. I think there it gets a little tricky in terms of like inventory management. Where do you actually ship from? What if you don't have that inventory in that particular store? Um, so it has additional complexities. The multi, the omni-channel um, approach is something that we see all of the successful and larger, like growing direct-to-consumer brands um, adapting. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess there, there's like a point in time where everyone sells everything, right? Mm-hmm. And, or if you can get the product that you're looking for and searching for at many different sites. You get on Amazon, you get on Walmart, eBay, uh, a lot of different third-party sites. Like how do you actually differentiate and how do you get people to come to your site versus the others or even your store versus the others? And it's like you have to have the best experience or you have to have exclusive products. And I think a lot of that has gone to like these new, the rise of direct-to-consumer brands as well where, you know, they're completely in control of how they distribute and where they own the site and the destinations. And you even look at Amazon with their own private label brands, Walmart doing the same. You know, that's how you get people to come to your site is it, um, or to your stores. If you either have kind of the best, most entertaining um, shopping experience in the physical retail store where you can get tea and coffee and also shop for your products at the same time or whatever it might be, um, return things at the, at the store, or it's that you just have something that's totally unique and that people can only get once if they come to you. And that's actually as an investor – has been a really lucrative area that we've seen a bunch of investment dollars kind of flow into and customers invested in a handful of direct to consumer brands as well. But personally, I've found really challenging because it's very hard for me to um, kind of look at and see a specific brand and kind of have the nose that it's going to be, you know, a hundred times as successful in the future versus something that'll kind of stall out. It's always really dangerous to um, you know, look at your own tastes and, you know, pretend that that's what the rest of the population will feel. <laughs> um, and so that's been, you know, to, to Eric's question as to where is there a lot of opportunity or where is Bessemer focused on as, as an investor in e-commerce? We've spent some time focused on, on direct-to-consumer brands, 
Although personally, I've found that to be really challenging. So Tali, I'm curious. I know that one of your companies is Function of Beauty. They're also one of our customers. So that kind of goes into the trend of like customization and consumers really wanting products that are made just for them. Is that a trend that you see continuing? And like, how do you see that scale? Yeah, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about that business and a point of differentiation that you know perhaps is a is a is a real competitive advantage for them or for other businesses that can pull off the personalization is just the supply chain around that and actually the ability to produce products in a truly personalized way that's at scale and that you can deliver on it without paying a massive premium for doing that. And so I think that's one of the biggest innovations that has emerged there. And actually, I think innovating around the supply chain of actually how do you create the goods can be a real competitive advantage. I mean, you look at the fast fashion world and like Zara and H&M, and they've built really awesome and powerful and massive businesses by investing a lot in that supply chain and in how that's made. And I actually wonder, maybe this is like a request for startups, but I actually, you know, I'd love to find companies that are enabling others to have much better supply chains and actually figure out, hey, like I have this great idea for a product. I can use Shippo. I can use Shopify. I can accept payments on Stripe. Like, okay, well, how do I actually make it and produce it and do it in the best way possible and optimize that um, process? And so Function of Beauty kind of did a lot of that hard work on their own and and has been really successful doing that. I think as far as how consumer tastes will evolve, like your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> it's so hard to predict. I have no idea if, you know, it'll be people will want kind of personalization or um, you know, we'll all flock to the same the mm-hmm. same sorts of products in the future. And that's that that's just a, a hard thing to, to predict, I think. But the benefit again of having that supply chain is that you can evolve to meet the needs. And to kind of deliver the products that, that customers really want. And so that's what's really exciting there. And separately, I think some of the most interesting kind of e-commerce businesses, um, in particular ones that have a more uh, recurring relationship with their customers, where much like shampoo and conditioner, you need to purchase it mm-hmm. every month or so. And that becomes a real touch point. And in the offline world, companies like Pantene or, I don't know, take your favorite shampoo and conditioner brand would invest a lot in big commercials and in shelf space on the retail stores. And today in a world where people aren't really making the decisions by looking at, you know, what's limited by what can fit on a physical shelf space, but where you have unlimited options and people are not picking just based on what's on the Super Bowl commercial, it opens up a really interesting opportunity for smaller brands to actually compete. And I think that's a lot of the trends that have led to the the growth in a lot of these direct-to-consumer brands is that, that dynamic no longer exists in, in the kind of e-commerce ecosystem. Yeah, I love that. And then at the same time, a lot of these larger uh, PCG companies, they don't have that direct relationship with the end customer. So as, as you said, they put their items on the shelf, but they don't have the, the customer's email addresses or like ways to retarget them. They just have that one, one moment at CVS or Walgreens when you're looking at uh, which shampoo to buy. And then it's a lot easier for a smaller brand to like start building those direct relationships with the end customer through social media, um, through influencers, whatever that is, and like make sure that customers you know, who, who don't want to go to CVS anymore are aware of the other options that they have online. And I think what we then see is that a lot of the larger CPG companies, they're doing e-commerce and direct-to-consumer for the very first time. So when they're starting out with that, especially on the shipping side, it's almost like a startup. It's something that they've never done before. 
curious to go deeper on on sort of direct to consumer brands. There was a time where where people were sort of like, oh, there's going to be a Warby for X for everything or a Casper for X. The hype seems to fade away slightly. I'm curious, what is sort of the criteria that makes a Warby for shoes maybe more attractive in all birds um, than a Warby for I don't know ceiling fans or or, or like I guess, what, what is the criteria of which you say oh a strong direct consumer brand of this category or subcategory can work and this one is probably not. You know that is again that's an area I've really struggled in and so my colleagues like Kent in particular here is far smarter than I am and can answer that question better. So I, I truly haven't figured out you know exactly how a great formula or pattern to um, kind of tell you specifically that, although I do think that there are, you know, one in, in categories that people do look for brands and trust and are looking for that. Like if you look at, if you were Boeing, maybe Boeing is not the best example actually in light of the 737 challenges, but if you were in a flying a plane and you had the choice of kind of the best brand and the, you know, worst brand or the, unbranded offering in the space you would of course choose the best brand because like it means something in your life is there and in certain categories um you know having that brand it really is just a promise and so i think categories that have that level of kind of meaning and where the brand lends itself to kind of meaning hey this is like the lowest cost best offering or this is a really high value product or this is one of the most fashionable it's quite valuable as well as uh personally i i lean towards categories where there is a much more recurring relationship and I think it's actually just much easier to build a brand in categories that have a really recurring relationship because you have to keep coming back and you have an opportunity to develop your brand with that customer whereas if it's a very one-time purchase it's it's much harder to do that and and much harder to build that sticky trusted relationship so I think that's part of the reason why a lot of these CPG categories have um, been some of the largest brands and some of the biggest vendors kind of continually over time is that they're products that you just run out of and need more of. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's also easy or we've seen a few of these brands that got started when the founder already had a big cloud and was able to, or or already had some sort of credibility in the space is able to reach the right audience fast. I think Glossier is a phenomenal example there where Emily Weiss uh, spend a lot of time beforehand like blogging, being influential in the space. And then with that, was able to start Glossier with with the audience trusting her already. The other part, like when I think about contact lenses as one example, or um, mattresses, there is that convenience factor of, or, or even like aligners, Invisal- like uh, Invisalign is the, the other brand, but like uh, there are aligners that are just line, like a visit, Invisalign being sent directly to your doorstep. Like it's the convenience factor. People don't want to go to the dentist. They don't want to go to the, to the mattress store. They want things to be delivered directly to their homes. And then with mattresses, it's a, it's an interesting example because nowadays we're able to like there is the right technology to to compress mattresses into a smaller FedEx box and have it be shippable so that's a, a an invention I guess that wasn't available to us beforehand and then repeat purchases as, as Talia said I think the last one is also signaling just like a brand that you're able to talk about um, where you signal a certain like belonging to a group be it all birds when you're in the tech community or glossier when you're into that group yeah. yeah. Uh, if your focus is largely on sort of e-commerce enablement and, and tools, how, how do you sort of slice up that space? Like if you would draw a mini market map 
right now in terms of like the, th- the different subsectors within that of what you're interested in? How would you sort of outline what that looks like? So if you look at everything you need to have a great business and to run a great business, there's when you, you need the storefront, you need to fulfill the to fulfill the actual goods. And you know, there's a whole ecosystem of companies that are innovating on parts of the actual kind of carrier ecosystem. Meaning, can we build a much better actual like sort of a FedEx or USPS experience and actually help improve that part of the logistics? There are kind of shippo and helping kind of with the fulfillment and actually kind of integrating and connecting with this whole carrier ecosystem and making it really flexible such that whatever those offerings are, kind of you can optimize for and easily work with kind of the best options for your business. But we've seen a lot and we continue to see a lot actually around around the logistics ecosystem more broadly. And then, you know, another part that we are spending more time in and thinking about is on the supply chain, meaning how do you have visibility into who your vendors are, where your products are coming from, how do you manage those relationships? You know, you might be uh, someone in the U.S. who has products are produced and, and best manufacturer for you is overseas. Like you might not speak the right language. Um, you might not have kind of a team that's set up over there yet. Like how do you navigate that entire ecosystem and make sure like, you're getting high quality products for the products you need on the timelines you need and integrate across the whole supply chain? And then lastly, I think there are a whole host of different businesses, many of which are kind of vertical marketplaces, some of which are tools that are helping you say, hey, well, you have everything you need to have a successful store, but you still need customers. <laughs> How do you kind of market yourself? What are the right distribution channels? Is a marketplace model kind of the right for the right model for this category? And what verticals in particular do we believe uh, there's a lot of opportunity for a marketplace to succeed in and win? And then maybe the, the last area that I'm Personally, like an, an idea I've been floating around in my mind and thinking about more and more is this notion of like, could you give someone the tools and empower someone with the tools that they need to everything they would need to start a business and create a little bit like a business in a box. And in particular, in industries that are very supply constrained, where there's just not enough um, talent or, or, or people. So if you think about in nursing homes, um, there's kind of not enough qualified kind of labor or, and, and the like, or, or nurses themselves. Like, could you give someone all the tools that they would need to actually start their own business and to, and to do all of that and to connect in to different sources of demand where, hey, we know that there's a lot of demand for X, Y, and Z, but we just need to create a high quality supply and that trusted relationship. But there's a whole lot of people that need jobs. Let's empower them and help them be entrepreneurs and be really successful and create that. And so that's another theme that I've been thinking about a little bit more. Wonder School is maybe a little bit of an example of that there where there's just real demand for daycares. And how do you create and empower people to actually create high quality childcare and, and, and create that supply? And I think that's a really interesting opportunity that I expect there will be a lot of different investment opportunities in over the coming years. Uh, Laura, how do you think about your investment thesis in, in e-commerce broadly? Either as a as a partner in this hypothetical fund or, or as an angel uh, right now. To caveat that, I just started angel investing late last year, and at this very moment, like I'm trying to invest in companies that I actually understand, meaning that I'm investing in companies that are mostly in the e-commerce and enablement space. I haven't really like been able to figure out a, like a sound investment thesis yet. Um, I think my mind is more around. Like, where can I actually add value and be helpful to the, to the founders? And that's like around B2B, um, like B2B tools, uh, e-commerce enablement tools, folk, like API centric companies. When I think about e-commerce enablement, I think I, I really echo what Talia has been saying around like 
most of the people starting online online stores these days, they are not e-commerce experts and they don't necessarily want to become e-commerce experts. They want to be the best at marketing their products or at making their products, um, but they don't want to learn the in and outs of, I don't know, online payments or shipping, how to build, how to set up a website. So all of these things need to be as easy as possible. And then on the one hand, it's like, there's a lot of complexity happening in the background. So when I say like making things easy, I think it's about abstracting all of that complexity that's going on in the background and then presenting it to the merchant as something that is very intuitive and very easy to use. So that's one area that I'm interested in. The other one is just a data and analytics. If it like when our customers, our SMB customers compete with retail giants, like they only have access to a certain data set and that's mostly their own data set and they don't know how to deal with that or what to, how to read into that. So um, machine learning products around like data and analytics is something that I'm, I'm interested in. So let's say our, our, our fund is a few years old. Uh, we have Shippo in it already. What would be in our anti-portfolio? Like what companies over the past three years, uh, two to three years have we, have we missed that we think are going to be massive and we, and we can't have mentioned them already or they can't be in the best in our portfolio? On the contrary, what sort of looking out in the next three to five years, what companies or types of companies or don't exist in sort of what white, what white space is there looking forward? Like where's the next Shippo going to come from, so to speak? Mm-hmm. So today I saw something cool coming out of YC, which was a SaaS product for warehouses. So I do think on the warehousing side, there's a lot to be done, like automating the processes happening in the warehouses. Also just like more modern warehouses, warehouses that are being used today. A lot of most of them aren't set up for direct to consumer shipping. They're still more on the outdated side. Um, so warehousing is an area that I've been excited about curious about what you're thinking talia you for sure spend more time on this well i think first maybe to answer on on the anti-portfolio or you know and bessemer has we actually publish our anti-portfolio and we're we're often right but we're also often wrong the mistakes of omissions are sometimes the most painful or often the most painful especially in this industry so it's a fun read if you check it out if you just search bessemer anti-portfolio we laugh but we also cry a little bit when we read it <laughs> but um there are um a handful of companies you know personally i think poshmark is, is one of the ones that i have in my personal anti-portfolio and have watched the company grow from a really young early stage company where even kind of before they started out a bit more pinterest like and then evolved into um, a marketplace for for fashion and a real community that's been has sort of the benefit of social media like engagement where people are commenting and engaged and spend time and browse and, and really just are super, super passionate about the community as well as transactions and unique inventory. And so that's a company that is is in our funds anti portfolio, unfortunately, and uh and, and we think about quite a bit. And then maybe the the other one I'd look at is 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 Wish uh, as well, where Wish I think it was a company that was a little bit harder for some venture investors early on to totally grok because, you know, they are selling, you know, they kind of go against the theme of like, don't do anything that could compete with Amazon. Like they're selling third parties, like unbranded goods that are somewhat commoditized. Um, I think a lot of what they did was actually, you know, they serve a, a segment of the population that a lot of VCs just don't see every day, which is 
they're not serving the more coastal elite, um, but they're really serving kind of the, the dollar store like customer segment. But what's really interesting about what they've done is that they have created a very much a browse and discovery based shopping experience and in particular have, have really innovated on the cross border side and cross border e-commerce where kind of price is actually the most important factor in driving those purchase decisions and they can get kind of the products and deliver the logistics such that you can buy a $3, $4 product from China, um, not pay for shipping and get it at your door. It might take 30 days later, but that's pretty amazing that you can sell something for four bucks, not charge for shipping, um, and still make money. <laughs> and so that's a big business um, that I think people will be surprised to hear how big it is uh, in the future and, and um, over time. Okay. So you alluded to it earlier, Tali, but what's your request for startups or request for sort of experimentation? Where do you see, want to see more entrepreneurs uh, experimenting? And, and another variation of that question is, if you weren't running Shipolore, if you weren't a partner at, at Bezimer Tali and you were starting a company in the space and you weren't limited to the skills or interests that you have, you were just trying to optimize for where the biggest opportunity is, what might you pursue or recommend as, as, as part of recommend request for startups? So it's a, it's a hard one for me because I spend all of my time just thinking about shipping and I don't have a lot of time to think about other things. Um, I was recently at an event where I had a really fascinating conversation with the guy and I asked him the same question. He said, if he wasn't working on what he was working right now, he'd be trying to figure out asteroid mining. And I started doing some research on that. It seems like, <laughs> I was I was very inspired by that conversation that there are people out there here in Silicon Valley thinking about things that are a lot bigger than what I'm working on. Um, and I think that's that's one of the upsides of being here. But I don't have anything concrete that I would be doing. Otherwise, I think I'm just like focusing all of my energy and resources on shipping first. Asteroid mining. Wow. <laughs> um, you all need to think bigger. <laughs> um, and by the way, I think that it's really interesting because sometimes I go back and forth and, and I think a lot of times, and it was part of our, I think my job to go back and forth, but between companies that are so dramatically thinking about what the future might be, if it's maybe a few years from now, maybe 25 years from now, it's not totally clear in some categories, but like what they're really inventing the future and are thinking kind of so far beyond what the average person is, is thinking about. If you almost can think about it as like the, if you think of Jeff Bezos, he has sort of two parts to him. He has the blue origin part, um, creating rockets and thinking about the future in that way. But then he also has this Amazon part, which as we think about in the here and now and today world, um, is the other part of investing, which is things that are probably not going to change always, which is, I think he has some famous quote that, you know, people will always want the lowest prices and things to arrive at their door the fastest. And I think there's sort of, that when I think about the areas that we want to invest in, it's kind of looking at those two things, which is, what is never going to change about human behavior and how can you kind of create a much better product experience business that might be have a second mover advantage or might rethinking something that exists and is very core to the human experience today or is serving an underserved community, but also these things that are just creating totally new markets and completely innovating and may seem totally insane and wild. But, you know, it turns out, you know, five years from now, you look back and it, it seems obvious. Both of those are really great investment opportunities and areas. So one is, whatever happened to conversational chatbots? And are those going to be a thing? Or conversational commerce, rather. Two, is it worth speculating on the future of Amazon vis-a-vis -vis Walmart? And three, what are Series A investors looking for in you know, e-commerce enablement startups uh, in terms of traction? You know, personally, I think that it's quite possible that there will be some really interesting opportunities in more chatbot-based commerce. 
part of one of the challenges I think has been that you have kind of, you know, unlike if you look at in China where everyone's on WeChat and there's tons of really interesting examples of conversational commerce. The difference here is like not everyone is on WeChat, not everyone is on the same platform and system. You have iOS, you have Android, there's Facebook, there's Instagram, there's a bunch of, and some of those systems have been historically quite closed. And I think as more of that opens up, there may be really interesting opportunities for conversational commerce and even opportunities for companies to kind of provide that tool set and kind of power some of those some of those uh, businesses as well. It's definitely early, so it, it might take a lot longer than than people anticipate. Well, I mean, I think Amazon's got a bright future. It's um, I mean, it's amazing what they do. I mean, across by the way, like it, it, what they're doing on the kind of infrastructure and um and on the on the software side with AWS as well is just like, wildly impressive and create and and mind blowing to be honest as well. And I think like their future is so bright. I would not bet against Amazon. Um, although we also, you know, believe that there's a whole host of opportunities to exist alongside them. Um, and we continue to invest in that same theme. But, uh, I don't know. I, I, I personally, um, and I'm a large Amazon shareholder because I think the business is, um, it's, it's one of the most incredible businesses that exists today. But, you know, I think at some point it's got a, like, I think it'll be the biggest monopoly we've seen probably since standard oil. And so at some point it'll be broken up. And I don't know if that's a few years away or if that's, you know, 15 years away, but I think that's in their future. Yeah. I think the other advantage that Amazon for sure has is that they're like, they started as an e-commerce company. Walmart did not. So it's, it's just a little bit of catch up that they need to do. In terms of what Bessemer is looking for at, at series A for some of these types of e-commerce and Amazon companies, what in terms of traction, what makes sense? We invest at both the early stage and at the growth stage. And so in terms of stage, we don't have any uh, rules. We want to work with founders that um, um, have a strong vision for the future and are working on working on building companies and products that um, their customers really value and like. And so I think we'd be excited to chat with companies that might not even yet have products, but have um, really strong views of, of, um, of what they're going to build and why it needs to exist in this world and, and can help us to see that future as well and, and can benefit from our experience. So they don't necessarily need to have any specific sort of kind of traction or momentum to, to be a great fit for Bessemer. Awesome. Talia, Laura, this has been a fantastic episode. Any, any last minute plugs or that people should, that the audience should be aware of in terms of what to stay tuned for, for, for Shippo and for Bessemer? Yeah, I mean, we are always looking for people to join the team. So we have a bunch of open positions right now. Our office is in San Francisco. We're looking for, you know, like hardworking, like people who are excited about the e-commerce space, people who want to come in, have an impact and uh, want to contribute to something big. And most of our like open positions right now around engineering, around product management, but it's, it's across the board. And then everyone who needs to ship things, I'd be like extremely excited to have a conversation with them to see what we can do. Um, we ship anything that shipping providers can handle and from the U S to anywhere in the world. Yeah. I'll, I'll second Laura's plug. I think look, we've been involved with Shippo for now two years. And honestly, Laura has been so awesome to work with Simon, her co-founder and the rest of the team um, are some of the most thoughtful, humble and, um, hardworking people. So definitely they're hiring <laughs> um, and, um, and you should check it out. But um, no, but, but, but truly we're, we feel really fortunate to be involved with the company and it's been really fun to watch them grow um, over the past few years. 
Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a super smooth uh, hour or so. Both of you did fantastic. Um, thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks, Eric. Thanks for All right. Bye. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 